Welcome to episode 99 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that is free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You'll find out more at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Army combat veteran Crystal Ellington, Crystal is a dynamic, agile storyteller who is passionate about speaking up for those who have historically been disenfranchised, systematically excluded, and institutionally oppressed. She is a fellow in the George W. Bush Institute Stand to Veterans Leadership Program, the Veterans Program for Politics and Civic Engagement at Syracuse University, and the New Politics Leadership Academy. Crystal is co-founder for Veterans at the Intersection and founder and CEO at Genonix Consulting, LLC. You can find out more about Crystal by checking out her bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Crystal, so glad to be able to have you on the show to share your story. I'm looking forward to getting into a conversation about the need for awareness of increasing diversity in the military and veteran population. But before we get into that, I'd love to provide an opportunity for you to share a bit about yourself and why you're doing the work that you're doing. Absolutely, Dwayne. And thank you so much for having me here this morning. I'm super excited to get into some of the meat and potatoes of some of the issues that are plaguing our armed forces, specifically racism and discrimination within the military. So a little bit about my origin story. I served from 2017 to 2021. So I am freshly out of the military very recently. But while I was in, I was the subject of a little bit of ire because I was very vocal about my need to show up as my full self, as at least as much as I could in uniform. And there were some microaggression when I served and it was very, I don't necessarily know the right word for it, but it was very disappointing because you hear so much about how I don't see color, the only color I see is green. And we're all brothers and sisters in arms, but that camaraderie reaches a limit. And I think the more intersections that you sit at, there are even more limits and even more ways for folks to ostracize you within the military. If you don't fit within that homogenous culture, it becomes difficult to integrate, frankly. So I had some experience with discrimination and microaggressions. And then unfortunately, I also was a victim of military sexual assault while I served. So those two things really got me on fire about making sure that, A, the folks that were perpetuating these ideas and these negative stereotypes were called out, frankly, and also to make sure that other service members that came after me wouldn't have to endure the things that I did. So that's my passion work. 
know, this, the idea of the endurance of microaggressions when in the military, you know, there, especially those who are listening, who may have served, understand that people throw elbows, there's sharp edges. There's it's and not to say severe and appropriate, but barracks talk, motor pool talk, like it's a, the military is sort of a rough edge kind of place, but a lot of people are realizing that some of that rough edge conversation or some of the comments really, like you said, cross the line into true microaggressions and discriminatory judgment against race, gender, ethnicity, sexual expression and orientation and things like that. So I'll give you an example. So I was getting ready to go to my very first promotion board. I was sitting with a senior NCO of mine. We were sitting and talking about, you know, how to be facing movements and certain questions I could be asked. It was a very focused time for me. I was very serious about getting promoted. I am a bit of an overachiever. (laughs) So I'm sitting there and another senior NCO comes in and looks me directly in the face and says, how do you feel about the Confederate flag? And I was so taken aback because I'm in promotion mode. I am in the mode of answering trivia questions, essentially, about the military. So to be blindsided with such a a weighted, heavy, loaded question like that, it's just an example of how the duality of Black service members and how we have to show up every day in a certain way so we're not bringing shame on the race because we're representatives wherever we go of our race, unfortunately. So having to really think about the next thing that I say instead of being able to have an open and candid conversation about race, I had to be aware of that double consciousness of mine, like the consciousness that, yes, I am a serving service member. I put my hand up to defend my country. And I am also a Black person that has not necessarily had the best experiences in this country. And having to deal with that and juxtapose those two against each other in the middle of the workday. <laughs> it's mental gymnastics every single day. And even to that experience, even if, it, regardless, even if you were a male service member, let's say, but if you were a Hispanic female service member, that question likely would not have been asked or even another service member of color. And it was specifically related to you and who you were and who you were expressing yourself to be. But also, it shocks me. I get really upset when I hear other NCOs acting in ways that are inappropriate, but just a a total lack of consideration of what you were preparing to do, what you were like, like it wasn't necessary, like it was a necessary conversation to have, only not at that precise moment, because not only would it cause you considerable amount of emotion and mental gymnastics, it could throw you off your game and likely impact your promotion, which it wouldn't have happened if you were, for example, a Caucasian female soldier going up to the board. Absolutely. I 110% agree. And I think that a lot of my coworkers and my NCOs knew that I was someone that was very vocal and very adamant about my duality and my intersectionality. I wasn't the type of person that was like, oh, not going to say anything here. I'm not going to defend someone that is being berated or they're having microaggressions against them. No, I'm going to speak up. And my unit didn't like this. (laughs) Needless to say, but I totally would agree with that. I did not see, I didn't bear witness to any other discrimination against any other people of color. Not to say that it didn't happen, but that just wasn't something that I saw. So having that question asked directly of me 
was almost an act of aggression. I felt mm-hmm. like it wasn't even micro anymore. It was aggressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wasn't exactly sure how I was even supposed to answer that question and still stay respectful because it was asked of me of a Caucasian NCO. And I think this is one of the things, and I retired from the army after 22 years in 2014, obviously spending well over half of my career post 9-11, have seen how the military changed from the mid 90s when I first joined. And then the generational shift and even understanding my father having served in Vietnam and worked with a lot of veterans as a clinician who served in earlier years. The military is changing. Like you're you're an example of how the military is significantly changing. And of course, that means the veteran population is changing. One of the important things that many people need to know is that today's generation of veterans is more diverse than previous generations, racially, ethnically, gender expression, sexual orientation. While there's much to be celebrated in that, I get the sense that we're at a point of needing to educate people that not everyone experienced the military in the same way, just how you talked about. Absolutely. So the topic of how the generations are changing within the military, it's very nuanced, right? So you have Gen X, then millennials, and then Gen Z. So really seeing how different it is from your generation to my generation was already interesting because you all were the generation that, you know, you talked to people on your house phones, you had dial-up, you remember having times playing outside before the internet was even invented. And now you have Gen Z. I have no idea what's going on in Gen Z. Like, I don't know what music they listen to. They're on like 17 social platforms. But all that to say, when you have this new generation that is very technologically savvy, is more aware of social issues and current events, they're educated, they're smart, and they educate themselves. But I would be remiss if I was to say that there is another side to that where you are seeing more instances of extremism because these service members are finding ways to make community with hatred, unfortunately. So there is that level of education of DEI that needs to be included with service members because a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And so I think it would behoove the military as a whole to make sure that there is a holistic approach for these service members. So not only making sure that they're mission ready and that they have all the things they need to actively succeed as they're serving, but also to make sure that, hey, you're a person as well. And I think that a lot of people in your generation have thoughts and feelings about bringing up the issue of race and bringing up the issue of gender diversity or whatever intersection that a service member may sit at. There's this reluctance to talk about things because it's never been done. It's always been, oh, we don't, we don't touch this topic. We don't, you know, don't ask, don't tell is, was a thing in your generation. So I think people need to understand that in order to effectively move forward and to be a more mission ready battle force, we have to make sure that we're addressing those microaggressions. We have to make sure that we're addressing the homogeneity of the military as a whole and that culture. The bro culture, you know, in a lot of the, we discussed before we got on in the special operations, special forces world, um, we really need to make sure that these folks understand that they're not the only folks that serve. It's interesting that you bring up that need for education. And you're right. I absolutely do recognize the need for education in my generation. So Gen X. And I even served when I joined in the 90s, there were still people 
in the early 90s, there were still people from the late Vietnam era, right? Mm -hmm. So I had served with even the previous generation. And then there was that transition for me into the next one. And a, a couple of things that what you just said made me think of is that in the late 90s, when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, I had two soldiers in my platoon. One was a young black man. One was a young white man. Neither had much interaction with the other race at any point growing up in their life. So one was from Mississippi, one was from Alabama, one was from a predominantly black community, and that's all he knew. One was from a predominantly white community, and that's all he knew. And of course, there was tension between the two of them, mm -hmm. right? And there was, there, there was aggression between the two of them. But then I think about my own personal experience, and I grew up in St. Louis, which if, if listeners may not know, it's a very racially and ethnically diverse, but also an extremely segregated it's like from street to street, almost community to community. But I grew up in a racially diverse family. My grandmother was Mexican. I have my half-brother, is his mother is Hispanic. But also I've got my nephew is black. My brother-in-law is black. And so I grew up experiencing and understanding the need for diversity, having those conversations, the need to have those conversations, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And other members of my family expressing significant racism that I absolutely abhorred and shied away from and don't communicate with that part. So I went into the military with a measure of understanding and being able to have those conversations where you're right, other members of my, my generation didn't mm -hmm. and we weren't educating. Like it, it was it, either you had that background or you didn't, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. And I totally agree with that. Either you had it or you didn't. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is also a very diverse but segregated city as well. And when I served, I remember going through AIT, which is the training that we have for our occupational specialties. And I also ran across a young soldier that he told me he had never seen a black person before until he got to AIT. And, and this was 2017. This was like 2017. this wasn't 1952. Still happening. I also think that people need to bring a certain level of curiosity to learn because I think once that curiosity is there and you're able to ask those questions. So really creating that environment of curiosity, but also creating a safe environment where folks that may not know things or are wanting to ask uncomfortable questions can really do so. Because once we have the uncomfortable questions out in the open, that's how we change minds and hearts. That's how we really educate folks as to what's really happening in the world and within the military. Because military is, is a microcosm of the culture at large. So if there is going to be you know, segregation and discrimination and microaggressions, all the military does is create a magnifying glass within that environment. And that's just what we have there. And you've mentioned before about intersectionality mm -hmm. and the concepts of intersectionality and different expressions of identity. And so going back to that idea of not everyone's experience in the military is the same. My experience as a male in the military is necessarily different than yours as a female. My experience as a senior non-commissioned officer, white male, is different than your experience as a junior non-commissioned officer, black female. And all of these different intersectional identities coming together, like you said, creates that much more of a unique experience and often that much more of a, a challenging or difficult experience. Oh, absolutely. I can talk about this all day. I'm only going to get on my soapbox for a little bit. <laughs> so really understanding, again, going back to how I was talking about earlier, how we have to show up as soldiers. So I think that really understanding mental health and really understanding how 
people of color, specifically Black people, need to be seen. They need to be seen in marketing. They need to be represented and being promoted and really seeing that leadership at the top level. But I think a lot of the stress and strife that people of color are going through, it can't continue to be bottled up. We can't continue to keep ignoring the elephant in the room. And I think one of the ways that Black service members and Black veterans really can take control of their mental health journey is really talking to someone because it's not something that can continue to be swept under the rug because when we don't talk about it, we're only perpetuating the culture that's already happening. But yeah, like I said, I'm not going to get on that soapbox all day. (laughs) No, I, and, but you're right. And, and so I think there's that idea of, you know, and you go back to earlier, you were talking about this idea of, you know, it's all one uniform, it's all green, but, but we're all individuals within the military, right? Within that experience. And then there's the need to reach out and talk to someone. And even the more intersectionality you might have, and we were actually talking about this before we started recording too, is the more intersectionality you have, the harder it might be to find a mental health professional that looks like you or has the same background and experience. So there's, there is a measure of trust and some, some need to be flexible, but not only, you're not just on the side of the service member that's seeking help, but the mental health professionals absolutely need to understand that intersectionality. Again, I absolutely think this is a conversation that we could have all day, <laughs> but I also wanted to touch on another topic that, that you are very passionate about and rightly so. The topic of military sexual trauma, we know that this is an unfortunately frequent occurrence for both men and women in the military. There have been a number of attempts over the recent years to make a difference in how sexual harassment and assault are addressed, reported, and prosecuted. Yes. So I, again, as you mentioned, was a victim of military sexual trauma, and it really made me think, you know, am I the only one that's going through this? Like, This is something that is extremely difficult to even just get through a day at work. So I felt very alone and isolated and alienated while I was going through that. And then I began to talk to more service members and began to talk to more, even just military contractors, about the sexual trauma that was happening within the military. It's not just women. You know, men also go through these things too, but they're less likely to report because of the stigma that comes along with it. So when I got out of the military, I knew that I wanted to do something to make a difference in how this situation was handled. So while I was with Minority Vets of America, which was my prior employer, amazing nonprofit out of Seattle, shout out to MBA. We worked directly with some of the folks that were involved with the Vanessa Guillen case and the foundation that grew out of that. And then the I Am Vanessa Guillen Act was passed not too long ago. And then we also got some sexual assault reform and the NDAA. So really making sure that we're taking the cases out of the hands of the folks that would continue to perpetuate the stigma that was already happening, but also make sure that the folks that have gone through these traumas aren't further traumatized and victimized. So we're really trying to take those cases out of the chain of command because the chain of command could be good buddies with the person that actually committed the sexual assault. So making sure that we have someone that is unbiased and working as a third party to really get to the crux of these military sexual assault cases, because that's also how we're going to get better data. We're going to get a better understanding of the environments in which this is happening in, because until we really understand those things and also make sure that the data is representative of the folks that are going through the trauma. So it's not just white folks, it's not just straight women or straight men, making sure that we are parsing down that data to understand how we can move the needle forward 
the essentially zero out sexual assault because it is something that does not need to happen. It's not something that is unpreventable. So really understanding what we're actually looking at here is how we can move the needle forward to make sure there isn't one more person that has to go through this. No, I, I absolutely, I applaud you and appreciate your efforts in, in, in absolutely reducing and eliminating sexual assaults because and you'd think that it doesn't need to happen. And there's this phrase, especially we used to use in the army, something that's against good order and discipline. I can't think of anything more that would be against good order and discipline than one soldier sexually assaulting another. But then there's this idea of not just eliminating sexual assaults, but reducing that near constant sexual harassment or even going back to those microaggressions you talked about. I've got a service member, a colleague that she used to say that she used to strategically plan when she would make copies because the copier was in a very small room and that she would make it very early before people came in or make copies afterwards. Because typically if there were other people in the office, that people would brush up against her or just or making comments about the size of different body parts, about trying to move around, just unnecessary. And so almost the concept of not just racial microaggressions, but also microsexual harassment, micro comments and things like that, not micro in the magnitude, but in the sort of continuum of harassment to assault by eliminating assault, saying that's not acceptable, also saying that this culture of near constant sexual comments and innuendos is also not acceptable. Agreed. And then it goes back to what I was referring to earlier as the bro culture, where, you know, you have like the, that's what she said, the, you know, the comments like that. And I understand that those things are said in jest, but there's always truth in jest, right? And really understanding that the level at which it makes someone uncomfortable and then in your example, that soldier has to be strategic on when she makes copies. That is absolutely insane to me. The fact that people can't just go about their day and do their jobs for fear of being called out on their gender or something that has to do with their gender. And it just adds another layer of intersectionality between being a soldier and coming to work every day and doing your job. Like for instance, I was a helicopter mechanic. My job was very involved. It was very tedious. You know, if you left out a screw, someone could die. <laughs> like this aircraft could fall out of the sky. Our senior NCOs would always tell us like you have to make sure you do the maintenance right because you can't just pull over in the sky. Like you have to make sure things are right before you get off the ground. But still having to deal with also being a woman in a very straight, cishet white male environment. Again, I talk about that double consciousness and really having to maneuver on a daily basis and do that mental gymnastic of let me make sure I don't order my uniform pants too tight or let me make sure that, for example, when I would go to PT in the morning, the NCOs would tell me not to wear sleeveless shirts. Like I couldn't wear like a spaghetti strap top or something. And I'm like, are you guys turned on my shoulders? Like what is happening? I just came up here to do PT. I was a PT stud. I will self-proclaim that. But having to come up here and worry about what I'm wearing because I'm being sexualized, that should not have to be something that I am concerned about in the military. No, absolutely. And I think this is one of the things is there's a lot of very positive things about the military. You know, it, it builds resiliency. It creates it, it creates camaraderie. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I think even before this conversation, you and I having similar experiences and being able to bond over our shared military experience, but also not to cover over the fact that there's, there are still, again, 
it's 2021 and there are still things happening that if people heard it, they would think that it was like the early days before civil rights. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things are still occurring and we can't ignore them. And I appreciate you for being one of the many voices, but a very necessary voice in making sure that doesn't happen. So if people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing, if they wanted to get involved, if they maybe wanted to engage with you to sort of share more about the things that you're doing, how can they do that? Absolutely. So a really big part of my work, all of the projects that I'm involved in, all of the associations and the VSOs are all on my LinkedIn. So feel free to search me by name, Crystal Ellington, and I will be sure to follow you back if you follow me. And really staying engaged with what's happening in the cultural landscape of the military, really understanding that policy is going to be the thing that moves the needle in terms of making sure that these military sexual assault cases are handled in an unbiased manner, making sure that we're not having those microaggressions, racism that service members have to endure every day. So to get involved with a VSO that's doing work in the community, VSO such as Psych Armor, who is an amazing organization that does education, as we were talking about before, about mental health, Veterans for Political Innovation, uh, Minority Veterans of America. I could go on all day, but just making sure that veterans and service members are staying engaged in matters that happen to folks that may not look like them, because we certainly need allies and we need folks that are going to be on the ground doing the work. Absolutely. I love that. And I will make sure that the links to all of those are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me, Dwayne. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. Psychomer offers an online e-learning laboratory that is free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. Find out more at psycharmor.org. Hopefully, listeners can tell that I really enjoy having meaningful conversations with guests, like the conversation that we just shared with Crystal. As she mentioned in the discussion, we need to have more conversations like this. Real and honest conversations about the reality of what is happening, instead of pretending like things are okay and that there's nothing wrong with what's going on in the military or even in our society. One, that is an unproductively narrow way of looking at things, but two, it would go against the evidence of what we're seeing around us and of the things that we know happen in the military in the context of our own service. The silence about racism, discrimination, prejudice, sexual harassment, and assault, the fact that these are things that we don't call out or we don't talk about are the reasons why they continue to happen. Like I said in our discussion, there are great things about the military. Any measure of success that I have personally achieved in my life is as a direct result of my time in the Army, and that's been true for many people. The discipline, the leadership, the global perspective, not to mention the educational opportunities, healthcare, all of the benefits of military service. At the same time, I don't know of anyone who served in the military who says that they have not witnessed racism, discrimination, sexual harassment and assault, and other unacceptable behaviors. Even when people are vocal about their opposition to this behavior, they can be ridiculed, belittled, or ostracized. The hierarchical structure of the military is so structured and drilled into you that the positive things that it can promote, the accomplishment of critical missions, the amazing things that can be done through coordinated effort, is also the structure that can be abused by perpetuating injustice. There was one point in my career where I was questioned about my loyalty to the unit when I was advocating for one of my section sergeants who had been blatantly sexually harassed in front of numerous witnesses. That because I wouldn't just let it go, I was making the unit look bad to higher headquarters. 
The Army's creed of the non-commissioned officer has a phrase that, for me, was the core of what I saw as my own personal leadership philosophy. My two basic responsibilities will always be uppermost in my mind, the accomplishment of my mission and the welfare of my soldiers. There were many times, as I was reminded by my superiors, that I often landed a little too much on the side of the welfare of my soldiers, especially if I thought the mission was asinine or irrelevant, although I didn't express it that way when I was in the military. But part of that basic responsibility for the welfare of my soldiers is to not subject them to abuse, discrimination, or harassment and protect them when they are subjected to them. I'm not talking about treating them with kid gloves or making the military easy. That's usually where these conversations go, where tough love advocates think that talking about equity and fairness and treatment equals weakness. But there's a vast difference between calling someone a knucklehead and using derogatory language about someone's race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation. Language changes over time, and words matter. A colleague of mine often uses the example of how we refer to those who are unhoused. He says, we used to call people who lived in the streets winos and bums, and now we call them homeless or unhoused. The words we use change how we interact with them. You would react differently to someone you saw as a wino or a bum compared to someone you saw as homeless or unhoused. For one thing, calling people winos and bums is a lot less compassionate and a lot more judgmental. And compassion and non-judgmentalness is not a weakness, it's a strength. So we know that there is language and behavior now that is entirely unacceptable, where it wasn't thought of as unacceptable 30 or 40 years ago. And words change, behaviors change, through having real and honest conversations about necessary subjects like Crystal is having. I've always said that I learned something new from each of my guests, but on re-listening, I was struck again about how Crystal helped me understand her perspective on my generation's approach to discussions about race, ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation. She's right. It wasn't something that we talked about. As she said, you either had the knowledge or you didn't, and those who had the understanding didn't always share that understanding with those who thought the opposite, which again, to Crystal's point, perpetuates the injustice and causes the generational friction. Ten years from now, the conversation will have changed, and necessarily so. Hopefully for the better, although Crystal points out how changes in technology and social media mean that more people are being radicalized and engaging in extremist rhetoric through increasingly segmented communication channels. But decades from now, the people of the future are going to look back at this period in history the way that we look back to the era of Jim Crow laws and forced segregation. It's inconceivable that a society would have been able to operate that way. We have come a long way, but we have so, so much farther to go. I'm glad that veterans like Crystal are there to help us to have these important conversations. So hopefully you appreciated my conversation with Crystal. If you did, drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at We always appreciate hearing from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share three previous podcast episodes that you might appreciate if you enjoyed my conversation with Crystal. In episode 56, we featured a conversation with Navy veteran Jerome Tennille as he talked about the convergence between community-based volunteerism and DEI principles. In episode 20, we had a conversation with Jennifer Dane from the Modern Military Association of America and the need to advocate for LGBTQ plus service members and veterans. And in episode 12, we had a conversation with retired Army officer Dr. Samuel Odom and currently serving Army officer First Lieutenant Marlon Dorch about their work as military social workers and the importance of diversity from a military social worker perspective. You can find a link to all three of those podcast episodes in our show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app, as well as on psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. 
You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care. And it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Much appreciation to the team at PsychArmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track, outstanding guest coordinator, and support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share this show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.